Hello, and welcome to the Celtic History Podcast, Episode 5, The ABCs of Hallstatt. Hello, and welcome back to the Celtic History Podcast. Last time, we went on a journey through the post-Bellbeaker cultures of Bronze Age, Central and Northern Europe, finishing off with the Urnfields Warrior Society. By the time we were finished, we reached a point which made possible the first known field battle in Northern Europe, the Battle of the Tolens Valley. Today's long-awaited people are, by a certain point, the first fairly undisputed by academic standards, Celtic people. That is to say, they are most certainly either the people or the ancestors of the people encountered in Central and Northern Europe by the Greeks and Romans who first wrote about them and gave them the name Celtic. These, of course, are the long-awaited Hallstatt culture. At the risk of sounding like a broken record, Hallstatt culture takes its name from the town that sits on the modern-day archaeological site. We will return to this most important site later, but for now I want to explain that Hallstatt culture can be divided into A, B, C and D. And I'm going to split these periods into A, B and C, D, as this is a helpful, if oversimplified, line to draw. The AB period is the Hallstatt that is, in fact, an expression of Urnfield culture. But by the time we reach CD Hallstatt, it becomes distinct in a sense and makes its own individualized mark. The best example of which is the Hochdorf Prince. Let us travel to a rainy field in southwest Germany. To Hochdorf and Eins. There, dominating the flat plains of Eins Valley, what is now an unremarkable German field, was in the 6th century BC a monument to power and influence. Inside a 7.4 meter tall mound of earth lay a timber chamber of around 5 meters by 5 meters containing a treasure lost until the 1960s. Inside the chamber, there was a great four-wheel chariot with iron wheels, a huge bronze amphora, massive drinking horns, and finally, a great four-seated bronze couch, all covered in expensive furs and fine silks. This chamber was not built for these treasures, however, that was clear. What was clear was that this chamber and the treasures were built with care for a very particular purpose. The wagon was embossed with 1,500 individual pieces of iron. It took modern blacksmiths over two years to recreate this, and it cost more than a Rolls Royce. Inside the chariot were many items of value and intrigue, such as a set of nine gilded plates and goblets sitting in anticipation of some great feast. Nine, a significant number to the Greeks. Nine men were needed for a quorum, which makes it an ideal number for feasting. We see more traces of the Mediterranean elsewhere in the chamber. The great bronze cauldron was in the style well known to the Greeks and was topped with three beautifully crafted bronze lions around the rim. However, only two are accurate depictions of the animal. 
The third one was clearly later replaced and looks nothing like a lion. However, it's not bad considering the crafters of the replacement had most likely never seen a lion before. At the time the vessel was placed, lions could be found all over the Mediterranean and it was filled to the brim with sweet, luxurious meat. Enough for everyone. The massive ivory drinking horns were clasped in bands of gleaming yellow gold. Too great to come from the horns of a mere cow. It in fact came from the old friend of the Yamnaya, the Uruch. It is clear from the size of the horns and the cauldron that this chamber was well prepared for one hell of a party. No party is complete, however, without adequate seating. And in this case, the grandeur of the pew matched the glib of the tableware. The massive bronze couch, 2.75 meters long, certainly long enough to seat four men comfortably, or perhaps for one party prince to lounge on. Graciously overseeing the revelry he has so magnanimously provided in his hosting. The couch itself is a portrayal of his power, and riveted bronze sheet inlaid with coral studding which portray three pairs of warriors locked in combat, waving long swords menacingly at each other. The outer sides each portray a figure riding a four-wheeled wagon dragged by mighty stallions. The man, perhaps the chief, holding a great rounded shield and a long sword. We can imagine him shouting encouragement or threats at the warriors below. Perhaps not warriors at all, but fine dancers, twisting, gyrating, and singing the praises of the man to whom this couch belonged. This man is suspended on the couch by eight bronze feet, depicting mouthless women again with holes drilled from coral inlays, each riding a unicycle with a working wheel, which allowed this heavy item to be dragged in and out, allowing this glorious item to be brought out and put away whenever the host so needed to throw a party to impress. And who are these women depicted on the unicycles? Slaves, perhaps? Wives? Servants? Daughters? Whoever they were, they certainly were not permitted to speak, as they are depicted with no mouths. And who, in their servitude, are these silent women? lifting above their heads on this magnificent couch. As you may have guessed, it is the occupant of this burial chamber. This man, over six feet tall, wrapped in fine terrian fabric from far off lands, covered head to toe, literally in gold, crafted to honed perfection. The great legacy of metalworking we've been talking about from the far-off steppes of Ukraine to the barrel burials of southern England shows itself in the elaborate decorations of this most magnificent prince. Starting at his feet, his carefully made hide shoes are furnished with bands of gold from toe to ankle. He sports a magnificent wide bronze belt encased in gold post-mortem, and within the belt, a brilliant intricate bronze dagger, the pommel coming to br two brilliantly curled antenna, common with prestige weapons of the time. This too had been encased in gold upon the prince's death, 
On his arms are reddish gold bands and on each fibula a stunning brooch to encase the coloured fabrics of his shoulder and on his neck. Also upon his neck, a mighty gold torque depicting a hunting scene, certainly a mark of status and even perhaps kingly power. So, who is this man? He must have been of some major importance to be buried with things that could have been so valuable to those who buried him. Presumably his family. We've already touched on the Indo-European tendency to use burials as an occasion to mark the prestige of the family name. What grand patrons could have afforded such a hoard? This burial is closer to the grandeur we expect of the pharaohs, not grubby barbarian chieftains. And of course... If he is such a barbarian chieftain, then why no weapons? Sure, there are signs of reverence of the warrior in his motifs, but the Hochdorf prince was not buried with any weapons of war that we can see. A ceremonial dagger is hardly going to be a useful weapon on a war chariot. And the other items he was buried with that I've not mentioned so far are more akin to survival gear than weapons. A bow and a quiver of arrows and some fish hooks. No sword, no shield, and no spear. And the chariot I described is more of a wagon than anything. And why on earth would you weigh down your speedy battle chariot with all that iron? So, a man of high status and immense wealth, yes. But what are we to make of the exotic Mediterranean items? You can tell a lot about what a man or his family are trying to say with what they choose to be buried with. I think, as do many archaeologists and historians, that he's trying to boast of his trade connections, connections that were obviously significant and important to the society that he lived in. So how do we get from a warlike reigning culture who cremate their dead and bury them in graveyards to a culture that buries their elites with hordes of treasure that boasts of trade connections over warfare? Well, Hallstatt AB is not particularly distinct from its Urnfield predecessor. In 1200 BCE, we see in Austria the same as what we see in the rest of the Urnfield zone. Intense warfare between tribes living in strategic forts. This was the kind of client society that led to large-scale battles, most likely perpetuated by a warrior class with a set place in society, much like Vikings. Rather than the constant low-intensity conflicts of earlier periods, for example, as we discussed with the Yamnaya, as in raids rather than battles. In Urnfield forts, we find large quantities of hammered bronze weaponry and beautiful bronze breastplates as well as evidence of war chariots. This is much closer to the Celts in our mind, and indeed some have taken to calling these Urnfield Celts. So it is clear that some things later associated with the Iron Age Celts originated with the Urnfield culture, but as you can see from the Hochdorf, the traceable physical evidence points to the culture coming from Hallstatt. So what makes the people living in Hallstatt different? Well, the answer lies in the name, Salt Place. As I mentioned in episode 1, in 1846, the first artifacts were discovered in the town that the culture is named for. First, in a prehistoric graveyard, then an abandoned salt mine. There is evidence that this salt mine has been exploited on and off since the Neolithic times. But the occupants of nearby abandoned graveyard were part of a successful late Bronze Age 
Dutch agricultural community who were Urnfield in character. There was nothing particularly exceptional about these people as far as Central Europe is concerned. What changed them was wealth. Between 1200 BCE and 500 BCE, the Hallstatt A period begins as the Urnfield chiefs in the area slowly begin to exploit the riches of the mines, either in more effective or more centralized ways. As I've mentioned before, salt during this time was white gold, as it was one of the few ways of preserving the food before refrigeration. We can imagine, based on what we know of Urnfield, that the chieftains at the top of society tightly controlled the mining rights, and as far as their wealth grew, their influence grew through the client system. During the A period, the Urnfield style of cremation is still favoured, so we see little evidence of princely graves like Hochdorf. However, we do find evidence of those at the bottom of society. Deep inside the Austrian Alps, as we delve into the depths of the shimmering salt mines, we find evidence of life. Organic materials preserved like the day they were made. Shows children's hats, leather and wicker satchels, picks and the oldest wooden staircase in Europe. This mine was no mere hole in the ground. This was a massive 3,000 square foot system equipped with lighting and ventilation. The evidence we have is that the whole families lived in here. They worked and toiled in the deep darkness of the caves. There are hats, there are shoes that belong to children, cooking utensils as well as work tools. Some historians believe these people were serfs or slaves, possibly slaves captured from that intertribal warfare. Looking forward again to the period during the written record, the Romans certainly attest to widespread slavery in their contemporary Celtic society. Apparently, one jar of wine could be sold for one slave, at least according to Julius Caesar. Regardless, the wealth of these great mines was not going to these poor souls. The clothes, food and tools found in the mine are, not, are purely functional, and certainly not fancy. We can imagine that the already stratified Urnfield society had a wealth gap that would make Marie Antoinette blush. As we move into Hallstatt B, the barrel burials return, though cremation still predominates, and here we start to see more evidence of this wealth. If we remember what the purpose of the barrels were, the return of these barrels indicates the predominance of clans and families wishing to preserve and associate themselves with the success of their ancestors after death, like their Indo-European predecessors. Perhaps the rights of certain commodities became associated with clans rather than by pure martial might. This decreased friction might have caused or been affected by the desire to trade their precious commodities for other things not found in their lands. Salt was not the only commodity in the Hallstatt zone. We have talked many times of the complex Atlantic trade route, which provided much of European copper and tin. But here, in the Austrian mountains, they have both those rare and prized commodities to make the precious bronze. So let's talk about the development of the Hallstatt zone. 
Unlike the Atlantic Zone we've mentioned previously, the Hallstatt Zone is landlocked and we have established how problematic overland trade can be. And in fact, doubly so with a civilization centered on the towering Alps. These clever chaps, however, did have a way of traveling which their unique environment provided. Where there are mountains, there are usually rivers. Specifically, the Rhone, the Rhine, and the Danube. Each of these rivers, in turn, will link our proto-Celts with distinct cultural groups, such as the Etruscans, the Greeks, as well as various cultures of Northern and Western Europe. We will delve deeper into these cultures in another episode, but just so you know, all the rivers mentioned here are going to be vitally important for the continental Celts of the Iron Age. At times they will be borders, other times trade routes, and the Rhine and Danube, for astute listeners, also represent the northern frontier of the Western Roman Empire. This is where we need to start plugging ourselves into the rest of the world as we move into the Iron Age, or more specifically, the world of the Mediterranean. We will also attempt to give an idea of the scale of the wealth, power, and cultural influences on display during the heights of Hallstatt culture. So join me next time for the Celtic History Podcast, Episode 6, Hallstatt Heights. Stay tuned for After the Music for my personal news and updates. See you next time on the Celtic History Podcast.